Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times, occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on June 22nd, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. A special guest this week, Tara Sklar, is professor of health law and director of the health law and policy program at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law. She also holds an appointment as a health law fellow at the University of Melbourne. At the University of Arizona, Sklar launched an overseas multidisciplinary online graduate and undergraduate programs in health law. Professor Sklar teaches and writes primarily in how laws and policies influence the health and well-being of older adults. She has an enviable publication record and, believe me, is an excellent collaborator. A final welcome to the pod, Tara. Uh, good morning, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a longtime listener and delighted to be a first-time guest. Well, we have something rather special to discuss and you've to present to the Twill audience. Uh, the Twill listener knows that we've been using the platform to get some really important content out to the uh, the listeners during these strange times. And uh, it's wonderful to work not only with the George Scholar Group and um, Petri Flom at uh, Harvard, but now also you at uh, Arizona. So why don't you tell the listener about what we're going to be hearing? Sure. Well, today's uh, recording um, we did a little while back, and it focuses on healthcare and research ethics for COVID-19. The idea basically came about through a partnership that Arizona Law has started with the NYU Gerson School of Medicine. Specifically, they have a working group called Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access, which we sum up as CUPA. It's quite an extraordinary group of people. Their mission is to advance research, policy, and education regarding the ethical issues surrounding access to investigational medical products. They bring to the table something quite remarkable that we were very attracted to at Arizona Law. We'll be talking more about today, where they have a fantastic track record of connecting industry, government regulators, patients, and patient advocacy groups in the experimental drug space. They get the conversation going in a constructive way where the patient's voice and that perspective, which often gets overshadowed, is continuously emphasized, uh, especially around the patient's ability to access unproven therapies. Uh, so in addition to this webinar, we've also been developing a course, an online course with, with CAPA that we're calling Access to Investigational Medical Products, Clinical Trials, Expanded Access, and Right to Try, which is part of our regulatory science program at Arizona Law. This is something that we hope to do every summer, and, and it'd be great to get uh, feedback on it as it continues to roll out. And so uh, the actual CUPA group is co-chaired by Art Kaplan and Allison Bateman-House. Its members should be very familiar to this week in health law audience, including Holly Fernandez-Lynch and Christopher Robertson. And the talks all focus on possible treatments of vaccine for COVID-19. In today's talk, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Art Kaplan. He'll be speaking specifically on the ethical issues in the development of COVID of a COVID-19 vaccine. He is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly, Mitty Professor and Founding Head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYA Grossman School of Medicine. His talk focuses on the current state of a COVID-19 vaccine. He paints a picture for what a safe and effective vaccine could become available, which he predicts uh, will be two years at the earliest. And his talk art also covers the historical context and ethical issues around human challenge studies and clinical trials. This is where a healthy human subject would be infected with the coronavirus. Of course, these types of studies, um, they could speed up the research process for a vaccine, but are very controversial. Uh, they clearly violate the do not harm ethical 
ethical principle. However, as Art discusses in his talk, there is precedent for these type studies. Both typhoid and cholera were addressed this way. There's also the sense of urgency uh, for a vaccine to become more quickly available as we are in a worldwide pandemic. It seems our physical distancing measures are falling by the wayside as the economy reopens and for various political ideological reasons. Um, we're in, we are increasingly seeing Americans being less cautious and the number of cases continuing to rise. So this need for a vaccine sooner than later um, is becoming more, more critical. So with that, I hope you enjoy this talk from Dr. Art Kaplan. Thank you, everyone, for uh, being here for this webinar. We have a uh, very, very interesting and timely topic uh, looking at the development research on vaccines to try and battle the uh, COVID-19 virus. There are huge ethical questions involved in this effort, and uh, we'll review some of those and uh, try and make clear what some of the options and alternatives and ways of thinking through the challenge of getting to a vaccine uh, involves. So I'm going to review with you a little bit of how vaccine development historically has worked. I'm going to uh, say a few words about why that has been very slow. I'm going to then tell you some of the obstacles that we face in uh, doing research to develop a vaccine. Then I'll suggest one uh, possible strategy for speeding up the development process, which is a so-called challenge study, and give you some of the pros and cons of that. And then we can finish with some of the issues around trust and public acceptance of a vaccine, which is a major uh, issue uh, as this particular vaccine uh, research goes on. So go all the way back. Uh, many of you will have heard pronouncements from the president, from scientists, from people working on vaccines, from uh, corporate people saying, we hope that maybe we could get a vaccine by the fall. Uh, Anthony Fauci and other infectious disease people talk more about 12 months to 18 months. I personally think these are very optimistic uh, projections. I cannot imagine us having a vaccine available to give to the world by the fall. I worry that when that particular time frame is announced, it gives the public false hope. They may wind up not trusting uh, claims about vaccines as much if people keep saying, we hope to have something ready to go by the fall. And obviously saying you have a vaccine by the fall gives people hope that the bitter days of quarantine and uh, the damage it has done uh, to their pocketbooks through economic uh, damage uh, will finally be over because we'll be able to vaccinate our way out of uh, this particular pandemic. I think a more realistic time frame comes in years, not in months. And here's why. In developing vaccines, you have to follow a process that's somewhat similar to the, that used in developing drugs. You find yourself first trying things on animals, usually primates for vaccines, to see if they develop uh, antibodies and to see if there's any adverse events. Basically, the idea of a vaccine is to create immunity, uh, not by uh, giving you the disease per se, but by giving you a diminished version, sometimes called attenuated version of the virus, a weakened version so that it doesn't make you sick, but it hopefully triggers an immune response in the vaccine recipient, or by giving you bits of DNA that might be involved in uh, the virus's code that could trigger, uh, or RNA for that matter, either way, genetic information that might trigger a response, uh, again, of the immune system without any risk of giving you the disease. So hopefully we will find that people make immunity to the COVID virus. On the other hand, we don't know that yet. So one of the biggest obstacles is, will we develop sustained immunity if we get infected by the COVID virus? Will we develop immunity 
sufficient to battle it if we get a uh, vaccine. And hopefully we will, but again, there's not any guarantee that uh, you're going to be able to build sustained, durable immunity, either through natural infection. You know, we all get colds and they come back and they infect us again and they infect us again. And that's a historic problem with this family of virus. Um, Or we get an injection and we build an immune response, but it's not big enough or strong enough to uh, take on uh, and kill the virus that gets into our body. That's been the problem with, say, HIV. Uh, We haven't found a vaccine capable, despite looking for many, many decades, of generating up an immune response sufficient to knock out all the different strains of the HIV virus. So first big challenge is, do we find something that actually works? The second big challenge is, is it safe? We are talking here about a intervention, a medical intervention that would be given to hundreds of millions of people in the U.S. and billions of people worldwide. When you're developing drugs, you certainly are attentive to adverse events and uh, things that the drug might cause in terms of unwanted side effects. But for almost every drug, you don't plan to give it to the entire population of Earth. So you know that if you're going to give it to someone, say, with cancer or someone with ALS or someone who has depression, you're talking about a narrow subset of the human population. Still may be a big group, but it's not every child, every elderly person, everybody with comorbidities. Vaccines go out to huge swaths of humanity, and this one would probably be the biggest footprint uh, of all in terms of trying to give it to everyone to get rid of the disease, probably the biggest footprint since polio, where you're trying to vaccinate the world uh, against that particular plague. So you have safety issues that really have to be carefully managed because even though you might accept a risk of, say, one in 50,000 having an adverse event, if you're giving it to 3 billion people, you're talking about a lot of adverse events. So you have to test vaccines at bigger numbers, larger numbers of people, so that you can be sure that uh, you really have something that both is generating an immune response, but it's also safe. In drug trials, once you move from animals, you do the same thing with vaccines. You probably do basic safety studies in uh, maybe 20 people just to make sure that everything is okay. Then you move on to phase two, as the FDA calls it, in the U.S. regulatory system. We're starting perhaps to settle on a dose to see how far you could go without causing an overreaction of the immune system, which has its own problems. And then you come to phase three in drugs. You might be testing 1,000, 2,000 people who have a particular disease, and you're going to see whether the drug helps or alleviates symptoms or does something for that uh, particular uh, group. With vaccines, you're probably talking 20, 30, 40,000 people minimum to see what happens in large populations so that you can detect uh, both whether everybody builds the same immune response or some people don't due to genetic reasons or age or underlying disease or because they're children and whether in fact you've got something that really is very, very, very safe. Nothing is going to be 100% safe. Um, Even standard vaccines long used that have been recommended, they may have one in a million kinds of dangers that go with them. But for this vaccine, I think you're really going to have to get uh, strong evidence that uh, it really is safe. So that takes a long time. Why? Because when you move to phase three studies, you have to answer a number of questions. One is, will a single shot build up enough immunity or are you going to have to administer more than one shot? Think of the HPV vaccine that is used to treat, uh, prevent cervical cancer um, when, or prevent genital warts. That is a two or three shot vaccine. Cholera is a two shot vaccine. Hep B is a two shot vaccine. It may be that giving somebody a single shot of something that builds immunity to 
the uh, COVID virus requires something to follow up to boost up the immunity even more. If that's true, that's going to take a long time to figure out, and it's going to take a long time to manufacture, let's say, in the U.S., not 300 million vaccine doses, but 600 million vaccine doses or more. So huge challenge in terms of speed to get that kind of uh, answer. You also want to know how long does the uh, immune response last? How durable, as I said earlier, is the response? Flu, we seem to have to vaccinate every year, partly in honesty because the uh, different strains of the flu come around, but partly because it doesn't look like the immunity lasts. So that becomes an annual task. Other vaccines have, you know, boosters that have to be administered uh, for them. So again, you're looking at bigger challenges in terms of manufacturing and distributing with uh, gigantic numbers, billions if we're talking about the world, potentially having to go back annually and do it again and again and again. That would be a staggering logistical nightmare in terms of availability of a vaccine. Other challenges become effectiveness. Vaccines are great, and they, in my view, have been the biggest public health invention uh, success in the history of humankind, maybe sanitation and uh, clean water. But right after that come vaccines, prevented more deaths, more disability than any other intervention, anything that medicine and science has ever done for humanity. But no vaccine is 100% effective for biological reasons. Some people don't respond to vaccines when most people do. Some people, the elderly often have weaker immune responses as they age, their immune system isn't as effective. Uh, newborns uh, don't have uh, much of an immune system going when they uh, first get into uh, the earth, <laughs> when they first appear. So again, you have to wait to give them injections frequently at six months or a year so that their own immune systems are there. They're relying on the mothers uh, passing on immun immunity uh, to battle uh, microbes and germs. In any event, probably one of the most effective uh, vaccines we have is measles. I believe that's 94 or 95% effective. Whooping cough might be 85% effective. A flu vaccine in a good year is probably 50 to 60% effective. In a bad year, maybe 30%. So if we find something that seems to work, hopefully it will be much more like the measles vaccine, but it may not. And if it isn't, then we have a problem because we're not going to really get herd immunity out of something that is only, let's say, 50% effective. We'll also face a policy choice. If we find a vaccine that is 50% effective, uh, are we going to make it and distribute it worldwide? Is it good enough? And how that question gets answered and settled is going to be a lot of debate among experts, among governments, among uh, all manner of people. But if you roll out a 50% effective vaccine, you're devoting the available capacity of manufacturing to make that. And it's hard then to say two years later, oh, we got a better vaccine. It's now 80%. So for all of these reasons, I am very, very, very skeptical that anything will be available in any kind of uh, numbers in six months, 12 months, or 18 months. You have both the research path to pursue to demonstrate safety, efficacy, durability, how many shots you need, how effective this thing is, do you need a booster? And then you've got distribution issues. You got to make it in huge amounts and distribute it both all over the US and all over the world. These are just incredible challenges. I can also tell you having studied vaccine development for many years, it's pretty rare that something doesn't go wrong in the manufacturing side, either in the uh, clinical trial process or in the manufacturing process. A plant goes offline due to glitches and uh, 
whatever, and you have to shut down and diagnose the problem and get the uh, biological incubator or the assembly line, depending on what you're making, back up and running. And those are notoriously uh, accident-prone manufacturing uh, processes, and they frequently do break down, adding time, again, to the availability of vaccines uh, as you try to make sure your manufacturing capacity stays intact, both for supplying it to research subjects, the 30,000, 40,000 people that you're going to study, or to distribute. Well, perhaps one of the core reasons why it takes so long to get an answer on safety and efficacy in clinical trials with any vaccine is that you give people, you people, which takes time to ask them to be in a study of the vaccine, and then you uh, are waiting after you get them all injected uh, for nature to infect them. I mean, that is you're relying on natural attack by the virus just out in the wild type world to infect the people who've uh, given the experimental vaccine. That can be happen quickly, depending on how prevalent the virus is, but it can take a while if, hopefully, rates of uh, infectivity go down, if we bend the curve downward, if for whatever reason the virus decides to ebb and flow and not be present all the time, then that lengthens out how long it takes for people to get infected. Uh, So you're waiting and waiting for uh, infections to occur and then seeing whether the uh, vaccine helped or did it have adverse consequences uh, once the virus got into the body and the body's immune system begins to respond. The normal time for that kind of clinical trial is measured in years. Um, I don't really see much way to speed it up. There are some vaccine manufacturers right now who are nervous that they're going to run out of subjects in the UK or the USA as a vaccine, uh, excuse me, as viral infection rates begin to drop down. And remember, another ethical duty with your subjects is once you immunize them with the experimental vaccine, you do have to tell them how to avoid getting infected. You really don't want to say to them, oh, well, we're not going to remind you about washing your hands or staying uh, socially distant or wearing a mask or other personal hygiene measures that they can take to avoid becoming infected. It's morally our duty to protect them uh, from infection since we don't know if the vaccine is going to help them should they get infected. So we can't just say, you know, do do what you want, expose yourself, uh, try to uh, avoid uh, taking care of yourself. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. And it isn't done in these clinical trials. So one idea that comes up for speeding up this aspect of getting answers about safety and efficacy and providing good data is to deliberately infect a vaccinated person with some version purified of the COVID virus. In other words, deliberately infect a healthy person who has been given the experimental vaccine with an agent that we know causes death and hospitalization and perhaps can cause longer-term disability that we don't even understand. So this is highly ethically controversial. The upside is the world is ravaged by this plague, economies broken, people quarantined, they can't really take the isolation and the being locked up, the behavioral ways of coping with this outbreak are very difficult to live with, very difficult to enforce. So we have a likely ongoing plague with many people becoming sick and dying and economies basically in trouble as a nervous public doesn't even want to come out. Many won't go back to work. Many won't support uh, industries like the theater or mass events like sporting events or concerts. Uh, Damage to the economy is occurring across the board as people don't have confidence that they can safely uh, return to normal. If you deliberately infect people, you can take a smaller group than 20 or 30,000. You probably could do this in the hundreds. Put them in a place where they can be observed and watched closely uh, as they get exposed to the challenge uh, version of the virus. Uh, Make sure there's high 
hospitals handy. Make sure they have every possible therapeutic agent that might look helpful should they become sick. Uh, there hopefully will be uh, more of these kinds of uh, therapeutic agents that might do a bit of good by the time this kind of challenge study got underway. And you want to make sure that those people have those available. You also are going to try and recruit, I think, to minimize the chance of people really getting sick if they do uh, get infected and the vaccine doesn't work. That means probably younger people. We certainly want an answer to whether the vaccine would work in older people. You look at the damage done in nursing homes uh, to people in terms of deaths. It's just been staggering. And obviously vaccination there would be highly desirable, but that's not a group you're likely to start out with either in a clinical trial or in a challenge trial. Uh, it'd be harder to tell what's going on in terms of adverse events. And I think the risks might be unacceptable in terms of exposing uh, very older, much older people to vaccines and then in a challenge study to the actual virus. You might recruit among medical students. You might recruit among the military. Interestingly enough, uh, the numbers get smaller. And if you do the challenge study as opposed to the longer uh, traditional clinical trial, you don't have to uh, worry as much about, are we going to do a placebo group with sham injections or not? Or can we just use as a baseline an observational group in the clinical trial? And if the first vaccine doesn't work, you can shift over very quickly to the next promising vaccine. Remember, launching a clinical trial for the first agent that looks good, many of these are likely to fail. So you're talking about sequentially trying to recruit tens of thousands of people, wait for nature to infect them and moving from one vaccine to the next. Again, that's why I say uh, if you're going to do it that way, six months, 12 months, even 18 months, it just doesn't sound uh, reasonable in terms of trying to uh, get uh, what we all hope for, which is a successful vaccine. So even if you go at Operation Warp Speed, the president's program, or like Britain devote uh, a lot of money to vaccine research, China doing the same, other countries as well. You still, if you follow the traditional path, you're going pretty slowly and you're moving from one hopeful agent to the next without any promise that the first one's going to work uh, or work uh, with a big enough response that you don't have to use boosters for it and so on. So even if a hundred or more groups are looking, you still have a long, long uh, testing tail here. So I do personally favor trying the challenge studies with conditions. One is you absolutely have to have the informed consent of the volunteers. They have to be uh, motivated by altruism. I probably wouldn't pay them, so there's no confusion about why they're doing it. You'd have to make sure they comprehend all the risks and the unknowns fully. I'd probably give them quizzes to make sure that they really understood. I'd give them a chance to change their minds, probably consent them twice before I put them into the study to make sure they really are ready to uh, take on uh, the dangers that they uh, would face in being in a challenge study. And I think uh, we want to make sure that while we get some ethnic and racial diversity in the study population, I would not be uh, using people who seemed overly eager to get into this, maybe uh, ignoring the risks or blind to it. It's great to want to volunteer and help, uh, but maybe we have to be a little cautious about the competency of people and checking them either psychologically or psychiatrically. But if the informed consent can be done and done carefully and done well, then I think letting people take these risks is some letting people donate a kidney or a lobe of liver or work in dangerous occupations. I even think the risk of this is less than saying to a healthcare worker, keep working around infected people, even though there's a pretty good chance you're in a nursing home or in an ICU or intubating people uh, that you are going to get infected. So uh, comparable risks seem to me acceptable relative to what we permit other people to do in other settings. We have done challenge studies before. It's not a long list of challenge studies, but they have been done. Even when 
rescue therapies have been uncertain, uh, say malaria, um, that we could really pull you back if you got it for the malaria vaccine. But in any event, I think the risk benefit in the midst of a plague with the tremendous death and damage that it's doing justifies seeing whether people would volunteer. So far on websites, about 25,000 people have said that they would do it and count it. They're all over the world. They're not in one place. We'd have to bring the group of people that we were going to involve in this to one place, observe them, give them the best available access to medical care and so on. But nonetheless, there's at least some reason to think that there are enough folks out there who would be willing to volunteer to help that this challenge study uh, model could be done. If we're going to do it, we'd have to begin preparing the pure vaccine now because that would take a couple of months to get ready and test it for safety. So those who favor that option, like I do, want to begin not so much tomorrow morning with the challenge study, but begin the preparations in terms of where the people would stay, getting a virus, uh, an artificial virus ready to go uh, to test against the uh, vaccine agents and so on. The last part of the story about developing a vaccine is once you get it, whether by clinical trials or using challenge trials, if something really does look safe and effective, then you have public trust. If the public thinks that the vaccine was rushed or the data is weak or uncertain or less than overwhelming in terms of safety and uh, uh, making sure that no one's going to get sick from it, there are a large number of people, both in America and elsewhere, who may not take the vaccine. There's already plenty of discussion on the internet about fighting mandates against vaccines, about conspiracy theories about why vaccines uh, should not be taken, whether Bill Gates has made them so that he can profit or that cell towers are involved in uh, transmitting the virus or that, uh, you know, vaccines are somehow a control agent of governments and on and on it goes. The anti-vax movement was getting stronger before this outbreak in terms of getting into fights about measles vaccination, childhood vaccinations, and so on. They've already started to transfer their opposition to vaccination to the uh, potential, not even existence yet, COVID vaccination. And there are many other people who would just look at a vaccine and say, I don't know, they seem to have rushed that. Didn't they talk about this as uh, somehow fast-tracked or warp speed or done very, very quickly? That makes me nervous. I'm not sure I'm going to take that. So again, another obstacle to uh, vaccine research and vaccine development and acceptance is public trust. If scientists were to say, well, the evidence isn't as good as usual, but we're in tough straits and we're going to roll it out. I'm not sure that's going to gain the kind of public support that you would get if you had strong data, convincing data. Challenge study is going to give you strong data and convincing data quicker. Uh, If you're doing clinical trials and you're on your fourth vaccine that hasn't worked and you're starting to really panic, maybe that could get you in trouble. I will say historically, both the polio vaccine and swine flu vaccine, when they were rolled out, did have manufacturing issues because speed was of the essence and public distrust including the uh, episode under Gerald Ford with the swine flu vaccine uh, manufacturing problems led to some of the momentum behind the anti-vaccine movement. So that has to be watched very, very, very carefully. Finally, again, even if you get this uh, vaccine and the data is good and it looks strong and you don't have to give it every year and it gives you sustained immunity and if, 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 but if we got it, you still have to manufacture it and uh, make hundreds of millions of doses in the U.S., billions of doses around the 
the world. It's not going to come out at the same time. Uh, people will have access to the vaccine as it gets made. It'll roll out. That will raise questions about who gets it first. There may be many appeals about compassionate use or groups that feel they have an emergency need, healthcare workers, first responders. That'll take us into topics later in the webinar about how one makes decisions about uh, which people or which individuals might get first access to a vaccine uh, as manufacturing proceeds. And then distribution, we have to watch out for justice. Many nations are going to say, we're making vaccine and we're keeping it. And we don't care uh, whether the outbreak isn't here. We're going to use it here first, even if it would make more sense to use it in a country that was having an active outbreak and you were trying to control spread from there. There is no real international authority or kind of power that can settle how countries decide to divide up the supply of new vaccines, either in terms of who gets it first or uh, what countries are going to be able to access first. Remember, many of the manufacturing plants are not in uh, countries that are funding the research. Uh, some vaccines are made in third world countries. Some vaccines are made, say, that the U.S. might be sponsoring, but they may be manufactured in Belgium or Britain or France or some other place. And those governments may say, we're not sending vaccine to the U.S. until we vaccinate our populations first. But that's a justice issue around distribution that we have to be alert to as well. So in sum, people talk about a vaccine being developed in six months, 12 months, 18 months. I think we would be lucky if we got a clinical trial the first time out of the box that showed something safe and effective after two years, three years. We can't chintz on the demonstration of safety and efficacy because you'll undermine public trust and you'll open a window for anti-vaccination sentiments to undercut willingness to uh, use this vaccine, which you know is our solution to this particular play. Challenge studies might speed up the research process, but they're ethically hyper-controversial and should be because giving people dangerous agents violates do-no-harm standard principles, but perhaps in a worldwide plague with the damage being done, it makes sense to bend that principle in order to get an answer more quickly about whether there is a safe and effective vaccine out there. And even if we find something, when somebody says six months, 12 months, I think they're talking about something that looks promising, not manufacturing it by the hundreds of millions of doses, much less the billions of doses, much less something that requires two shots or three shots. So that's why I say I don't think the world will see a safe and effective vaccine against the COVID virus for years, not months. And that, after that fascinating presentation, was the week in health law. You can find Tara on Twitter at T-R-S-K-L-A-R. Thank you so much for bringing uh, that great lecture to the Twill listener, Tara. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'd also like just to highlight for the, the, um, the Speak in Health Law audience that we'll be doing another webinar with CUPA that's coming up on July 17th. We're calling it Taking Care of Chronic and Acute Non-COVID Patients During the Pandemic. As we all know, um, the healthcare delivery for the chronically ill and for those in emergency situations that are non-COVID related issues has been um, a real pro problem during this time. And this entire webinar will be focusing on that from a wide range of perspectives, including from a patient advocacy in pediatric, where we're seeing how clinical trials are being impacted, especially for patients who live across an international border, in this case, Canada to the U.S., and then what is happening in the emergency room setting in a major hard-hit urban area, such as New York City. So uh, the link will be posted for that webinar coming up on July 17th, and um, all your listeners are welcome to join. Great. And that, of course, will be in the show notes. And before that 
comes out on Twill. Uh, we're also going to be uh, talking again about the second uh, part of uh, this uh, vaccine uh, webinar, which will be coming out on Twill in a week or so. So uh, I am an, at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe and sane week. <laughs>